is as individuals and together. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Lord, as we spend time here this morning in your, in your amazing, inerrant, infallible, powerful, Holy Spirit-given word, we pray that you will, uh, even as your Holy Spirit is present, that you will be at work in our hearts and in our minds, that we will not be the same people as who came in as we go out. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, there's a story of a husband and wife who were driving down a road when they noticed a Cadillac. And the Cadillac had its hood up parked at the side of the road. Now, uh, the driver clearly looked perplexed and agitated. The husband pulled over and asked the man if he needed any help. And he explained that he knew that when he left home that he was low on gas. But he was in a big hurry to get to an important business meeting so he didn't stop to fill his tank. Now, fortunately, this couple happened to have a, a gallon of gasoline in their trunk, and they gave it to the man. The man thanked them profusely, then he drove off. Now, uh, it was a Cadillac, as I told you, so it was a bit of a gas guzzler. And 12 miles later, they saw the same car stranded on the side of the road. They pulled over again, and the man told them that he was in such a hurry to get to his meeting that he decided to skip the gas station and press on, thinking he could make it on the one gallon he received. Now, uh, most of us find it hard to believe that someone could be that stupid. That is, until we remember that that's exactly what we do in going about living the Christian life. We're so busy pressing on to the next item on the agenda that we don't stop to fuel up when we neglect to study God's word and spend time daily in, his, in prayer, what we're doing is acting a lot like that man. The busyness of life and the prevalence of entertainment easily block out that nagging sense that we need to spend time daily drawing close to the Lord in prayer. Think of uh, Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I'm going to be preaching about that sometime soon, but... Uh, just think about that for a moment. Martha, is, uh, remember, is consumed with busyness and, and with assessing others, especially her sister. While Mary, on the other hand, counterculturally, had given herself fully to be a disciple and drawing close to the Lord and Savior. So this Sunday, I'd like to give you this, uh, a bonus sermon on prayer. 
you know, we spent eight weeks on that, and we've spent, I mean, we could literally spend years on the topic and still not cover everything that the Bible has to teach us about prayer. But this was a, a sermon I sensed we all needed. And so uh, we'll be looking at a prayer of Paul that I think has the potential to have the greatest power to overcome the barrier of spiritual dryness and drought that might uh, be taking hold of maybe us as individuals or maybe as a community. You know, and it's really quite a short and simple prayer. And uh, if you've got your, uh, your bulletin, I've got some notes in the middle there, and if you want to follow along with that, I'll fill in the blanks for you. And uh, point one on that outline is this, pray for what is excellent for one another. Pray for what is excellent. Now, uh, as we look at this prayer, on a basic level, we can see that Paul is asking God for this increasing love. See, look at that with me. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. But the love, as you see here, is not an end to itself, but a means to an end, as he writes, so that you may be able to discern what is best. So in essence, what Paul is praying is that they discern and approve what is best. The Greek gives the sense that what is, of what is excellent. What Paul is praying for is the death of entrenched mediocrity of a sense of self-satisfaction and contentment with our own excuses in life. But what Paul desires for them and for us is what is excellent. So, uh, of course, we need to know and ask what he means by what is excellent or what is best. And it's uh, in this context of this letter that we discover what he means. If we and the Philippians are going to grasp and approve what is excellent, Paul makes it clear that their love and our love will have to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That's why he prays for that kind of love. So uh, point two on your outline is this. Excellence isn't easy to discern, and it only comes when we are characterized by abounding love. See, it, it isn't that it's intellectually complicated, but rather to grasp and approve it, we as Christians must be characterized by abounding love. See, Paul's language seems very odd to us, who believe that love is all, of, all about really just our fickle emotions. You know, we're, we're, we understand that love abounds more and more, but what does Paul mean by love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? So uh, let, me, uh, just th- let me just say, I think it might be helpful to understand what Paul's point is if we consider the opposite of Paul's prayer. He doesn't pray that our love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity. He doesn't pray that our love might abound more and more in stupidity and callousness. He doesn't, or cheap sentimentality and narrow-mindedness. 
See, the ever-increasing love that Paul prays for is to be one that has insight. In other words, it is one that understands the truth and understands the reality of the situation around us. You know, today we often view love as just sentimentality, that it has little to do with our minds and with rational understanding. In my uh, experience, people often prefer to live in ignorance of the realities around them rather than face the truth about themselves and about others. This is something that often, uh, in my experience, destroys churches. People who don't want to really see reality and would rather live in a delusion that everything is just fine. It's an important lesson that I try to teach congregations who are going through a revitalization time, a time when they're seeking to heal, to forgive, to reconcile, and then to grow and reach out in love, even in the midst of their own brokenness. And so I think it's very important that we look at this very closely. You know, I was once told by a church leader in a church that love, in a church that I was serving in, that love means ignoring the depravities in others, ignoring how someone might be hurting others so that we can have unity in the church. Let me uh, make something very clear. This particular leader was absolutely and sickeningly wrong. True Christian love is always accompanied by knowledge, as Paul puts it, a mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel and deep rational eyes, eyes opened grasp of what is real and what is true. See, Christian love must go hand in hand with a deep sense of what is right and wrong. They go hand in hand. So point three on your outline is this. Love without discernment is not biblical love. Love without discernment is not biblical love. See, knowledge and discernment without love easily becomes caustic and destructive. But a love and commitment without knowledge and discernment is really just empty and just as destructive. See, what Paul prays for is a love that is founded on a, on a deep experiential knowledge of the gospel and a deep knowledge of what is moral, what is right and wrong. It's the kind of love that Paul prays for, that it might abound more and more. So when we pray for ourselves and we pray for one another, we need to pray for this kind of love. It's a love that is motivated and informed by the gospel and by what is right and wrong and what is real. Some time ago, I was uh, working for a church that was in the midst of severe conflict. And as we were in the midst of fact-finding because of an atrocity that was done against one of the leaders of that church, a uh, former deacon told me and the other leaders that she wasn't interested in looking at the evidence and looking at what was real and what was happening. See, she and others didn't want to see what was really going on, what was true. 
because it meant that they would have to see how someone that they cared for was involved in something deeply corrupt, deeply destructive, and yes, even demonic. She informed me that it was love to remain ignorant. It's the exact opposite of the love that Paul prays for would abound more and more in the lives of the Philippians and in our lives. In fact, it's not biblical love at all if it's not truthy love, love that is lived in truth. Let me uh, give you an example of this. And it comes from a little, very, very, a very little, very not well-known portion of Scripture, even in the New Testament. In one of the most fascinating letters in the New Testament, the third letter of John, Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, if you will. I'm not talking about the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm not talking about 1 John, chapter 3. I'm talking about the third letter of John. It's a very short little letter. And in it, John writes as he always seems to. He always seems to entwine these ideas of truth and love together. And he writes to a man named Gaius. Gaius he is described as displaying generous hospitality to Christian ministers and evangelists and teachers who passed through the area. He received them in his home and entertained them at his own expense and even financed their further travels. He used his time and resources in Christian re- service. John uh, describes the secret of Gaius' service as being dominated by love. He walked in the truth, as John describes him. Think about that. How would you like to be described in Scripture as a man who walks in the truth? What a beautiful thing to say. And he encouraged and supported and gave of himself in love to teachers of the truth of God's Word. He was purposely and strategically generous in love with his home and with his finances. And he's presented to us by God's Word as a a positive model of how we're to live our lives among God's people. Now, uh, we're introduced to a second person. This person is is a negative model of a life lived with neither truth nor real love. His name is Diotrephes. And John writes that he loved himself more than others. And he says that Diotrephes always wanted to be first. He loved the public eye, and he wanted control and power. He had to have the limelight. And it was his pride that is being highlighted by the terms in the Greek in that letter. And this, uh, this was ultimately the root cause of the trouble in that church. The human sinful pride tendency is to take something good, like our abilities, our position, our achievements, our wealth, and decide that those things are entirely our own accomplishments. Diotrephes had a position of responsibility in the church, but he loved it too much. And when John the Apostle, John the Elder, who had greater authority, overruled him with the truth, that's when the flaw of his character came out, his pride. He was exposed But not only was Diotrephes proud and self-willed, he 
he linked those things together. One led to another. See, pride causes us to think of ourselves higher than everybody else and never accept spiritual authority. Diotrephes deliberately defied John by turning others away from the church. He resented the arrival of teachers representing John. He feared that those who came teaching the truth would mean that he would be minimized, maybe even ignored. See, he was more concerned with his own glory and his own reputation. Those who wanted to obey John and welcome those traveling evangelists, well, he just simply put them out of the church. Why? Because pride creates in us an unteachable heart. And an unteachable heart won't allow the truth of God's word to really sink in. An unteachable heart goes hand in hand with a self-righteous attitude that cares very little for the feelings of others and is unconcerned for real needs and real pain. It ends up being someone who's argumentative and contentious about almost everything that goes on in the church. Someone who lives with this kind of pride never sees their own flaws and they're unwilling to change. There's another danger to a prideful, unteachable heart. It hates change in the church and anything that's different, no matter how much that change is shown to be in line with God's Word. But John uh, doesn't stop here. He gives us another positive model of, of what truthy love looks like. He talks about a man named Demetrius. Demetrius attracted others, and he says Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone. Now, of course, uh, sometimes it isn't good to be spoke, uh, spoken well of by everyone. Sometimes it means we're merely following the crowd, but that wasn't Demetrius. Demetrius's good testimony didn't rely only on the words of others. See, his Christian genuineness was confirmed by how he lived his life. John uh, uses one of those perfect rare tenses of the verb Literally, in the Greek, John says he has received a good testimony, meaning that uh, people had previously given testimony about Demetrius, but in the Greek it has the idea that, uh, that, that testimony now stands as an assured fact. His life is lived in harmony with the truth of God's Word. Boy, again, just a remarkable thing to have said about you in in God's Word. And, but uh, you can also see something about the Apostle John's heart here for, his, for this church. See, uh, John will do everything in his power to turn this church around to pursuing the truth, despite Diotrephes. Diotrephes himself needs to be saved, even from himself. Diotrephes needs John. He needs John to be persistent so that his heart will be softened. And John, well, he, need just, he needs, just needs to be courageous and continue to confront Diotrephes. See, John writes that he will be entering into the situation after he's counseled with his messengers. He knows that God is with him and that God's desire is for the truth to win and for his people to walk in the freedom and joy that comes of living in love and truth. 
And he can't fail to stand for that truth and love. So here's my point. Why do I bring up this letter? I'm going to be back in Philippians in a second, but there's a reason I have to bring this up. And that is this idea of truthy love is so combined in John's letters here that, I, that it's highlighted, it highlights what Paul is saying about how we're to live. And it's the major point of this letter. The reality here is that Diotrephes dwells in each one of our hearts. The impetus to deny the truth and to pridefully and with an unteachable heart do what pleases ourselves. That's the Diotrephes attitude and that's crouching at the door of each one of our hearts ready to take over. Each and every time we come to God's Word, we need to humbly ask the Lord to put to death the diatrophies of our hearts and bring to life the Gaius and the Demetrius that embraces real love and truth, entwining them together in our hearts as we seek to follow Him more closely. So how about you? Does diatrophies have a grip on your heart? Will you soften your hearts once again? Will you allow Jesus to soften your heart again? See, uh, if we're to see real revitalization happen here at Parkway, here in our midst and in our lives, we need to pray that Jesus would put to death the diatrophies that has gripped our hearts and enliven the Gaius and the Demetrius as we seek to live with trust and with real truthy love. It's that kind of love that's needed if we together test and approve what is best, what is excellent, as Paul describes. So go back to Philippians here. See, this also helps us understand what Paul means when he uses the phrase, what is excellent when we understand that it's dependent on the multiplying of this biblical, truthy love. What Paul is saying is here that that there are countless decisions in life where it isn't a question of making a straightforward decision between the right thing and the wrong thing to do. What's needed is extraordinary God-given discernment that helps us to understand how things differ and then make the best possible choice to be led by the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul means by choosing what is best. Filled with that truthy love, love that is shaped and empowered and honed by knowledge and moral insight, is a requirement for testing and approving the best possible choices in life, giving us a sense of what is vital and life-giving. Now, there's another important aspect to this, and it's uh, the next point on your outline, and that is not maintenance, but improvement. See, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, which we looked at, Paul tells the Philippians that he always prays for them with joy because he is confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His vision for them is for positive improvement in their discipleship, 
until they are face to face with their Lord and are perfected in the last day. And it isn't as if we are mere passive audience. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he sees himself still in that process. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, we too need to be personally resolved in this. Because even as we pray this way for ourselves and for others, we need to be resolute toward this kind of growth. So the excellent things are really all those aspects that are characteristic of a maturing Christian disciple. And we can't know or approve them unless our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What's best includes an ever-increasing experience of the power of the resurrection and increasing participation in Christ's sufferings. And this results in a growing knowledge of Jesus. See, the excellent things are delicate choices that reflect our value, our system, our priorities, that come from both the heart and the mind. That's why Paul prays that their love and ours might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insights. He wants their and our minds and hearts to be overwhelmed by God's truth. You know, this is really a very practical prayer. It touches on every aspect of our lives. It deals with how we spend our time, how we treat our families, how we witness to others about the gospel. It deals with what we take in, what we read, what we watch. It deals with our relationships. It deals with how we treat our relationship with the Lord, our prayer time, our spiritual disciplines. It deals with how we spend our money, how generous we are to our church and to others. It deals with our heart, and our compassions. Now let me be clear here. Paul isn't trying to make us guilty, and I'm not either. Because feelings of guilt uh, rarely help us to make the right choices. In fact, they often just increase our stress and create resentment in our hearts. So point five on your outline is this. Never legalism. Never legalism. But this springs from a heart transformed by God's grace. See, if our love abounds more and more, shaped by knowledge and insight, then we will want to make the right choices, the thoughtful and prayerful choices. These are the kinds of choices that are made by a mind and heart that are transformed by the grace and love of God. See, each one of us is different. How we use our time, what's best for each of us will differ depending on our gifts and how we were created. So the prayers that we pray for each other keep us from setting some kind of arbitrary hoops and checkpoints for which to measure. Paul prays that we pursue what is best, 
knowing full well that we can't pursue excellence without transformed hearts and minds, and it's vital that we pray this for one another. Just as Paul does, that our love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we can discern what is best. You know, in uh, my own study in, in, on prayer, I've learned that I can't be lackadaisical in my praying. The more I grow in the faith and knowledge of my Savior, the more I know how far I have yet to go. I want you to share that same kind of vision for yourselves. I want us to grow together, to be more passionate about, about pursuing spiritual excellence. And so I pray that for each of you this morning and ask each of you to pray that for me. You know, and as a, again, as I've spent more and more time, I can't help wondering how much time I've wasted going about the business of doing church and haven't spent nearly enough time in prayer. And so I'm asking you to join me in praying daily for what is best, for a spiritual harvest, for people around us to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for an overflow of the, of the fruit of the Spirit? Do we experience little because we've asked little from the Lord? I want you to ask yourself if you pray for excellent things, things judged to be excellent, that is, in God's eyes. Do you pray that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? I'm asking you to pray that for your vision team as they go about the task of assessing the ministries of this church and how to best encourage those ministries to change so that they are in greater alignment with the vision and mission that God has given us. I'm asking you to pray those prayers for those of you who are, for those who are working with our children, with our youth, with our music ministries. I'm asking you to pray that prayer for the person sitting beside you in front of you, behind you? Do you even know their names? If not, I'm asking you to learn those names and pray these prayers for them. See, this kind of excellence will never come about without prayer. Now, Paul also uses the phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness, to further explain what that best or excellent is. See, it's, it's a picture of a living organism, like a tree that produces fruit. The one who makes the growth and fruitfulness possible, of course, is Jesus. So while we pour ourselves into the process, into the process of spiritual growth, the fruit really is only made possible by Jesus at work in our lives. Just like in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here, every righteous thing the Philippians produce comes through Jesus Christ. What Paul never does is tell them just to try harder. Do you see that? Other than uh, try harder to be worthy of Jesus. Ultimately, he always points to the righteous living that is the product of God's grace. And that's why these letters of Paul are always bathed in prayer. Always. Linked in prayer. Paul interceding with God and asking for an ever-increasing work of God in their lives. 
See, Paul prays, as we should, that the love of our brothers and sisters might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we will all together be able to discern and approve what is truly excellent. And all of this is so that you and I may be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness, as Paul puts it, ultimately with a view of the day of Christ. Now, I've, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We need to live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will return tomorrow. So, too, we need to pray with that kind of urgency for each other. We need to pray remembering that we are called as missionaries in this community. And so point six on your outline is we must be praying and living, always remembering that we are moving to the return of Christ and that we are a community. We are a missionary community. See, we need to pray and live remembering that we have been promised a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will come to full bloom. And so we live daily with the end in sight, anticipating that day, filled with that amazing vision of that day, and that we are called together here at Parkway as an outpost, an outpost of heaven, a reflection of the new heaven and the new earth. So even as we continue to struggle with sins that cling to us, by God's grace, we aren't what we were. We are a missionary community because we aren't citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. We are positionally already seated with Christ, so we exist in this dying and lost world as a missionary community daily imploring others to join us, to join us in this lifeboat. And we do so praying for revival, praying each day that we might be what we ought to be, praying that we will live out our mission of loving others to real life in Jesus. You know, in the history of revival, what we find is that resentments dissolve, self-promotion dies, we are more concerned about integrity, and we embrace self-denial learning to love in truth. Heaven becomes more real, and the world becomes more fleeting. When revival comes, worship isn't something we do just on Sunday morning, but every day. And evangelism becomes a passion of our community. And it's only God, only God can produce this transformation. Only He will give us revival. Only He can revitalize our church. No matter how much we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we must recognize that our best efforts are nothing other than God's working in us both to will and to act according to His good purposes, as Paul puts it in chapter 2. That's why prayer is the most urgent aspect of revitalization. We must ask God to work in us. And it's vital we learn to pray this prayer together with the Apostle Paul. Now I want to make one final caution here, and this is the next point on your outline. What is best is not perfectionism. What is best is not perfectionism. 
One uh, biblical scholar wrote about these verses, God isn't interested in 100%ism. What he meant by this is that while God wants us to give ourselves completely to Jesus and the gospel, this can't be confused with a legalistic type of perfectionism or a high uh, achiever personality. This isn't an ex- now, of course, this isn't an excuse for laziness or carelessness, but rather focuses not on our own efforts, but we are looking to glorify God by utilizing the gifts and grace that he has given us. And that's where the final point on your outline comes in. Prayer that is zealous for the glory of Christ. Prayer that is zealous for the glory of Christ. That's the ultimate test of our motives, isn't it? 